Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our Christmas series, A Well-Researched Christmas, today. So let's look in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 25, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God Has Taken Away Our Reproach. When I think over the years, all the things that I've prayed for, you know, I'm actually thankful that some of those things God has said no. It's not because I wasn't needy at the time and didn't look to God to supply that which I needed. It's, however, that sometimes I actually didn't know what I needed. I, I didn't have the wisdom to know what to pray for. But at other times, God has answered yes. And furthermore, sometimes the yes was so much more than I'd ever asked for or even imagined. When Luke begins to tell the Christmas story, he begins by telling the story of an old man, an old woman, a couple from the tribe of Levi. In truth, we might be surprised by this beginning because it's not until later that we're made aware why this couple plays into this story. But the story begins for Luke with the story of an aged priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Over the years, I have no doubt that they earnestly pleaded with God that he would have mercy on them and grant them a child. But they remained childless, and then Elizabeth reached the age of menopause, and, well, their dream was shattered. But when we read Luke 1.13, which we're going to read a little while, it would seem that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they must have kept praying even past the age of childbearing. I suppose we might say to them, well, look, folks, it is time to face reality and recognize that God in his infinite wisdom has decided to leave you childless. And I mentioned in the last program that childlessness was in that time and in that culture, well, it was considered a reproach or a rebuke from God. After all, it's God who gives children. Psalm 127 verses 3 to 4 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Well, even though the Bible never says that the absence of children are his rebuke, yet, you know, a great many people in that day thought so. And it may be that Zechariah and Elizabeth thought so as well. But whatever they thought, we know that even in old age, this couple must have, at least on occasion, continued to pray for a child, and that's remarkable. And then we know that when Luke describes the birth of Jesus, well, he will describe a miraculous birth. But in truth, the Bible is full of what we might think of as impossible birth stories. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, would have been around 90 when she bore Isaac, her firstborn. You know, the Bible indicates that the mother of Samson had been barren. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, had been barren. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says, For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Well, yeah, here's the idea. God is able to bring children to birth where it was absolutely impossible. And I have no doubt that that might have been the reason why Zechariah and Elizabeth never stopped praying. And then, as I mentioned yesterday, a very unique day happened, something that it would have only happened once in Zechariah's lifetime. Since there were so many Levitical priests in his day, the priests would have been divided into divisions, and then in each division, each priest would have been given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter into the holy place and offer the evening incense as God's prayers were being offered. And on that day, Zechariah, the old priest who had been kept from having children and who had this one moment, he had been kept up till this moment to have that one opportunity to burn incense before the Lord. 
And he would have been alone in the holy place, burning incense and offering up prayers for the people of Israel. So let's read what happened next. I'm reading Luke 1, 11 to 13. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I notice as we go to verse 19, which we will read in a moment, well, the angel identifies himself. He says his name is Gabriel. He stands in the presence of God, which means he's one of the mightiest generals among the hosts of the armies of the Lord. Alone in the temple, confronted by a great general in the hosts of the Lord, Zechariah is staggered. He's deeply afraid. But the angel immediately comforts him. But that doesn't take away the fact that a general of the vast and powerful army of the Lord has been directly commissioned to speak with Zechariah. And suddenly Zechariah sees that his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the Lord's temple is hardly a random moment. This is his moment. This, for every reason in the world, will be a day unlike any day that he has ever encountered in his life. But what would constitute the reason for such a visit? It's remarkable. Why would God send his general to speak to him? A little worrying, to say the least. Perhaps he was already nervous about his once-in-a-lifetime assignment, but now this. And then Gabriel tells Zechariah his reason for the visit. God has answered his prayer. Elizabeth will be pregnant. She will have a son. Your prayer has been answered. I wonder if Zechariah put his hand over his mouth and started to weep. But that's not all the angel says. They are to give him the name John. The name John means the Lord is gracious. And then Gabriel says to this frightened old priest, you and Elizabeth will have joy and gladness. This is what you prayed for all your lives, but, but here's the kicker. The joy is not just yours. It will be shared by a great multitude of people, a crowd far larger than your family and friends. This child will have a great impact, a greater impact than you can imagine. So I'm reading Luke 1, 14 to 17. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let me fast forward to what Jesus would later say about John, this son born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Really? Greater than Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon? Yep, greater than them. Well, then why don't we hear more about him? Well, here's the kicker. Just like a beautiful full moon is eclipsed by the rising sun, so also this great man John was so quickly eclipsed by the coming of Jesus. The fascinating thing is that John was delighted to be eclipsed by Jesus. In that sense, he is amazing, and his life is a model for us. Do you remember the time when John's disciples were getting jealous for John? Jesus was becoming more and more popular, and, and more and more disciples were leaving him and going over to Jesus. And John simply responded, and it's recorded in John 3, verse 30. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's completely content. 
even delighted with the rising popularity of Jesus. It's how all of us should feel around Jesus that we should learn from this man, John, to say, less of me, more of Jesus. I'm so happy when my life is overshadowed by Jesus. I, I could relish no greater idea than that no one paid attention to me as long as they pay attention to Jesus. That's John's attitude. But let's get back to Zechariah and Gabriel in the temple. John has not yet been born. Gabriel is telling Zechariah about a boy that Elizabeth will bear. And he tells Zechariah five things. First, that this boy will be great before the Lord. In other words, in God's own estimation, this will be a great man. And the reason for that is that he will be a man that will not resist God's purposes in his life. He will willingly accept God's greater glory, even though it means that he will have to step aside and receive less for himself. John would be content with that. You know, that's how we can be great before God. Not by accomplishing something for God, no, no, but by willingly accepting what God has for us, no matter what it is. That's what greatness before God is. Now, here's the second thing. Zechariah is told that his son will live a life of discipline. No wine or strong drink. He will be an ascetic. He will live simply. Now, Zechariah would have heard in those words, no wine and strong drink, the command that he and Elizabeth would raise this boy as a Nazarite. And no, that doesn't mean that he's someone from Nazareth. No, no. A Nazarite, that's a, a technical title, and it's given to a very particular vow. It's described in the Mosaic Law in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. You know, Nazarites were people who took a vow in which they refrained from alcohol, and they even refrained from eating grapes. They would not shave. They would let their hair and their beard grow long, and it would indicate that they were under a vow. But in most cases, that vow would last for only a set period of time. But not in this case. That is, in the case of John, he would be under a Nazarite vow for all of his life. It indicated that he had a lifetime of being set apart for God. This would be a unique man. Dr. John shared these words in our Christmas series. I genuinely love to recount the most amazing birth in human history. And I love to retell the story that at that moment, the people who are walking in darkness, darkness like an overcast, gloomy, wet December, in just such a world, a great light has shone. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The task of every believer is to tell the story of the God of light. The month of December sets the stage for the ministry that will take place through Back to the Bible Canada in 2019. Your partnership, your prayers, your gracious gifts allow this Bible teaching ministry to continue. Join us this month by helping reach a goal of $427,000. Your gift allows this ministry to share the light of Christ across Canada and far beyond. Partner with Dr. Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I've said that the angel tells Zechariah that he will have a son and that he will be both great and that he will be a Nazarite to fulfill a lifetime vow of separation for the service of God. But I've said that the angel gave Zechariah five descriptions of the son. I've only given two of them. 
The third is that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even while he's in his mother's womb. You know, some people have difficulty with that. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, after all, we've been taught that among believers in Christ that we receive the Holy Spirit after we repent of our sins, and then we surrender our lives into the hands of Christ. And that is, after we're converted, then, and only then, God in mercy grants us the grace of the Spirit-filled life. So what do we make of this? A child in the womb, what today we would call a fetus. Now, before we explain how a fetus can be filled with the Spirit, did you notice that in the Bible, a fetus, well, that's a child. God doesn't wait until birth to call a fetus a child. When a child is conceived in the womb, the child is a child. It is then already created in the image of God. But even so, a child in the womb is still a child of Adam. And as a child of Adam, the child is born into sin. David said so, and in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. You know, David's not saying that the sexual relations between his father and mother were a sinful act because it wasn't. You know, in the context of marriage, the act of marriage is God-honoring. Now, David is saying that every child is conceived or it's born into Adam's sin. It's created with a sin nature. It's born as a rebel, in need of grace, in need of redemption, in need of a savior. See, that's basic to the Bible's understanding of the human condition. And that makes Luke 1.15 perplexing. I mean, how is this child to be filled with the Spirit at conception? Well, the answer to that is found in various places in the Bible. Consider it as an example, call of Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah is at that time a young man, and God is calling him to be a prophet. So listen to Jeremiah 1 verse 5. God is speaking, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That is, when God makes an appointment, he doesn't wait until we understand it and agree to it. See, he marks out his man before eternal ages. And that's what the angel promises Zechariah. Your son will be conceived in your wife's womb, and the Holy Spirit will fill him and set him apart for the ministry he will receive from God. You notice that even though John will need to be forgiven and will need to yield to the will of God in his life, yet his future, well, that's already determined by God. That's what it means in his case to be filled with the Spirit. So again, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son will be great. He will be a lifelong Nazarite under a vow to God for all of his life, and he will already be marked by the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. But still, Gabriel's not done. Fourth, this boy will turn a portion of the nation of Israel back to God. He's going to lead a national revival. He will be at this point in time the greatest preacher that Israel has ever seen. And then fifth, and this is really the kicker, this boy will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Indeed, since Zechariah was a priest, no doubt he was more than aware of some of the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. See, I have no doubt that Zechariah understood exactly what the angel was telling him. Your son will be the fulfillment of the promise that God will send a great Elijah-like figure to prepare and make ready the coming of the Savior of the world. And if you think about it, it's incredible. Zechariah had spent years praying for a child, and now, 
This one time in his life in which he is called upon to offer incense in the holy place in the temple, God, in a marvelous way, was putting all of his prayers together. God was answering both his prayers for the nation and his personal prayers, you know, in one big answer. God was going to take away the reproach of childlessness and the reproach of Israel's sin in one amazing answer to prayer. So you might think that the old man would be jumping up and down and praising God. But then something strange, and I'm reading Luke 1, verse 18. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And for the first time, doubt enters his voice. How shall this be? I'm an old man. I'm not an older man. I'm an old man. And my wife, she had her last period so very long ago. And Gabriel's not laughing or chuckling. Failure to believe God's promises, well, that's always sin. So let's continue to read verses 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. That's to say, God's purposes don't require your faith in order to happen. God's God. His purposes stand. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. You know, when God purposes something, our plans, our unbelief, our rebellion, that doesn't stop God. The announcement that had come to Zechariah was settled in the mind of God. It was going to happen. But God's not mocked, and Zechariah needs to know that. His speech is taken away so that he doesn't forget. It's better that Zechariah doesn't speak anymore so that he might learn to trust in God. And in the meantime, the people are outside the temple. You know, they've come for evening prayers and they're beginning to wonder, where's the priest? Something happened. He's an old man. Should we dare to send someone in? And then the old man comes out and he looks shaken. And I'm reading verses 21 to 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. (laughs) Now, normally, the priest would offer incense and then step outside as the people gathered, and he'd bless them, and he'd pronounce the blessing of Aaron. You know, priests would then raise their hands, and they would say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But not on this day. Instead of doing any of that, he can't speak. He makes signs with his hands, and everyone realizes he's seen a vision. Something amazing has happened, but they don't know what. And if you didn't know the details, you'd probably conclude that Zechariah, well, he sure messed up his great and grand moment, wouldn't you say? That once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer up prayers in the temple and then come out and bless the people of God. In fact, all that the Bible says is he went home. Sounds anticlimactic. It was the great preacher John Chrysostom who said, Zechariah looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost its strength. He looked at his wife's sterility, and he refused to accept on faith what the angel had revealed would come to pass. (laughs) I think that describes it quite well. You know, in a way, I must say, it's a fitting description of how so many people greet Christmas each year. You know, I often hear that people frequently go into Christmas depressed, don't have enough money for gifts, and not enough family is around, and too many fights in their family, or whatever. And for some, indeed, for many, 
You know, Christmas is a time in which that old story is just too difficult to believe. But listen to verses 24 to 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Do you know, when Luke tells the Christmas story, he tells of one mute old man and one pregnant old woman, and he says, Can you imagine that? And Elizabeth says, God has taken away my reproach. No one will ever look on me again and mention my barrenness. And then instead of showing herself, she keeps herself hidden for five months. I think Elizabeth needed some time. She needed time to think and time to worship, and she needed time to pray. She might have remembered how she had joined an incredible privileged company of women like Sarah and like Hannah. And how many times did she repeat, Thus the Lord has done for me. Thus the Lord has taken away my reproach. But not just for Elizabeth, but for all of Israel and all of the people of God. God was about to take away the reproach of his people. He was going to deal with her sin problem. And as you and I get ready for Christmas, perhaps that's the way to begin. What has God done for you in the Christmas story? Just like Elizabeth, if you know Christ, he's taken away your disgrace. And just like Elizabeth, you need to repeat, thus the Lord has done for me. And if you have never known Christ, could you also hear in this story that God is ready to take away your shame in the story of Christmas? John, you had mentioned Chrysostom earlier and his perspective of Zechariah looking at his body and his hair and his age. And you know, there was a lot of good reasons why this probably shouldn't have happened and yet it did. Sometimes we have to just trust God amongst all the evidence. Yeah, when God speaks something, it will indeed come to pass. It's not a question of, you know, am I able to do what God wants me to do? Uh, The question is, has God commanded it to be so? And it is. So, you know, in Zechariah's case, it's the question of his willingness to bow his head and say, Lord, if you say so, it must be that way. You know, and Christmas, I think, tells us that, you know, God has done the impossible. And so for us, you know, to come to Christmas, as so many people do, and they're depressed and all sorts of things are not right. I mean, we need to hear that that God has broken in. He has done the impossible. I mean, let's rejoice. Let's not be like Zechariah in disbelief. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Reflecting back on my last trip to Israel with Dr. John Newfeld, I can honestly say it was a trip that changed so much about how I read and experience the Bible. And that's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering our 2019 Israel Experience. April 28th to May 6th, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, the Back to the Bible team, and special musical guests will journey through the promised land. Those places you've wanted to see and experience like the Sea of Galilee, the Garden Tomb, Bethlehem, accompanied by the on-location Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld will become a spiritual experience of a lifetime. So don't delay. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information or to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2019 Israel Experience.